ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. I'm the Dean of Students and a Humanities Instructor at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Here at What's the Res, we are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. As part of that, we are also very interested in who are the key leaders in the world of high school debate. Because, of course, from the debater's perspective, it's all about the debaters. But it takes a lot of manpower to create the opportunities for debate to happen. And today we're going to be talking to somebody who is part of creating all of those different competition opportunities. So uh, my guest for today's episode heads a nationally competitive local high school program. He's been instrumental in improving the quality of North Carolina debate. And at least so far in my experience, he knows everyone there is to know in the national community. And at the conclusion of the 2019-2020 regular season, he was inducted into the Dogwood Speech and Debate League's Hall of Fame. His name is Crawford Lavoy. Crawford, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. Great to be here. Well, Crawford, I, I really appreciate your leadership in our local and state level, especially of, of debate. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey into speech and debate. Have you always been involved in one or the other or both? How, how did you get to the place that you are now? Yeah, uh, my story begins uh, actually in middle school. So this is my 20th year touching the activity in some manner. Uh, my story begins because I desperately wanted friends. Uh, I moved to a public middle school from an independent school uh, in sixth grade. And when it was time to leave that middle school in eighth grade, I still found myself as an outsider. Uh, I found myself as someone who didn't feel like they fit into the larger crowd. And so I was sitting in my science class one day and uh, someone turned to me and they said, are you going to do speech and debate next year? And I probably would have said anything if it made me feel like I was going to be part of something. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I had no idea what I was signing myself up for, uh, but I knew that I immediately went and put it on my course catalog for my first year of high school. Um, so, uh, And that was really the start of my story. I competed at a high school in Alabama called Vestavia Hills High School, uh, which was one of the most successful programs of the 1990s uh, with multiple national champions, champions at the Tournament of Champions, top speakers at invitationals all over the country. Uh, and so that's where I started. I did pretty much every event that you could do at the time. Lincoln Douglas, Policy, Extemp, Interp, Oratory. PF wasn't a thing uh, until very late in my career. And even then it was called crossfire debate or Ted Turner debate. Uh, and then I went to college and tried to stay active in the community through judging and, uh, through coaching. And eventually the road kept bringing me back to speech and debate through some Avenue. It's only truly been the last five years that I've gotten to focus a hundred percent on it. Uh, I've, done everything from run restaurants to uh, work in law offices, a number of different other jobs in order to be part of this community. And now I have the great pleasure of truly serving in it uh, with almost all of my time. That's really amazing. I, I, and I, I know that that variety of experiences has really prepared you to help students in a bunch of different events do really well. And it seems like coaches I've talked with tend to focus on a specific event uh, that they're usually better at or, or even a uh, even just a genre, whether it's uh, all in on speech or all in on debate. Uh, but those the events you just listed off, you've done both. Do you have a preference? Uh, well, you know, I think that this uh, this hyper specialization that's occurred uh, is not one unique to speech and debate. Right. Like I think you see it in athletics. Uh, the people who are the best runners, uh, that's all they do now. The people who are the best lacrosse players, that's all they do. Uh, and that's not how it was uh, when I was in high school. Uh, you know, you had two or three season athletes that did multiple things. And I think debate was uh, very much the same way. Uh, I think that, you know, when I was competing, the same people who were winning Lincoln Douglas were winning extemp at every tournament. And those people were competing in Congress too. And it wasn't odd to see a, a three event state champion or a three event national qualifier. Uh, I think we've just gotten away from that. 
Um, and that comes out of this idea that you could be really good at one thing. I think that we are hyper-specific on prep for one event. Uh, as far as do I have a preference, I, I, uh, I actually really enjoy one of the events I did least in high school, which uh, is Lincoln Douglas. I did it only my senior year in high school. Uh, I had a really influential coach who changed my life, uh, who was there to coach LD, and Cindy Woodhouse, who's now at John F. Kennedy Cedar Rapids in Iowa, uh, but at the time had come from Bettendorf and then went back to Iowa City West, uh, showed me that this activity could be what I wanted it to be from that uh, day in my eighth grade year. It could be a place where people love me. Uh, and ever since then, I've worked with LDers. Some of that has been because I've been at schools that have only had Lincoln-Douglas debate. And then when I came to Durham Academy, I came as the assistant director of Lincoln-Douglas. Uh, but I work, I well, I try to work with all of our students, whether it is our congressional debaters, whether it is watching interp and tweaking things, uh, whether it's sitting in public forum topic analysis. I try to give a little part of me to everywhere uh, but at the end of the day, I, I spend a lot of my time with our LDers. That's fantastic. I know uh, L, LD is one of my favorite events, and I, I've loved getting to watch a few kids kind of get get a little bit better at that over over time. Uh, Crawford, could you walk us through uh, a bit of the lay of the land in terms of what does this look like nationwide? And I know of a couple of organizations. I'm thinking primarily there's I know there's the National Speech and Debate Association. There's the National Catholic Forensics League. There's Determinative Champions. There's a couple homeschool leagues. I didn't realize until we hit the end of the Dogwood season that the Dogwood League was the feeding league to the National Catholic Forensics League. So could you help walk us through kind of what what exactly does this look like nationwide? What are the major organizations and how do they all kind of fit together or do they fit uh. together? Yeah, I mean, it is it is a Venn diagram from hell that probably fights back like a Rubik's cube, uh, and that is because uh, one the the simplest answer is that the community is large. It is a extremely big tent, and some of that is in like every organization where schools of thought don't agree with each other, and there have been splits. Uh, and there haven't been as many mergers in the high school world as there have been in the college world. Uh, so I, probably the largest national organization is the National Speech and Debate Association, uh, which oversees the National Speech and Debate Tournament, uh, which is supposed to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico this summer. Uh, it oversees the qualifying to that tournament through the district tournament process. And then it... Uh, oversees its own topics and its own event rules. For a large amount of this, those are the topics and event rules that permeate the rest of the world. Uh, and by world, I really actually just mean the United States. Uh, global debate is something very different. The National Catholic Forensic League or the NCFL is a organization that has a national presence, but only runs the Grand National Tournament, which up until Friday uh, when they made the announcement would have held its Grand National Tournament in Chicago. That is a much more decentralized organization and the idea that the board of it is completely volunteer and based off of elections of community coaches they have a process of local organizations that qualify students to that tournament, but the uh, method in which they do that qualification is uh, very different. Uh, some areas do a points race. Some areas do an application. Some uh, areas do one tournament. Some areas don't really have a formal CFL organization, and it is a small group of coaches who use those slots to send their own kids to the tournament. Uh, and for the most part, the events are all of the same with the, uh, with the change of dramatic and humorous interpretation being added together to create dramatic performance. They use oral interpretation instead of poi. There is no info. And so it's slightly different. 
Uh, the Tournament of Champions is almost something completely different, but truly is uh, the nexus of what is national circuit debate. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, J.W. Patterson, who was a longtime director of debate at the University of Kentucky, decided to have a debate tournament that featured the best policy debaters in the nation. And the method in which they did that was they recognized tournaments from around the country at certain levels as bid tournaments. And you had to receive a certain number of bids to be invited to the Tournament of Champions held at the University of Kentucky. Uh, that tournament has now been expanded to include Lincoln-Douglas Public Forum Congress in the speech events. There is still a another organization, the National Debate Coaches Association, which runs its own national tournament and a bunch of professional development. There are the homeschool organizations, uh, the NCFCA, the STOA, and with the homeschool organizations, they actually create their own topics. And sometimes the formats, uh, if you saw Lincoln-Douglas debate at a local tournament that was using NSDA rules, that wouldn't look exactly the same as a STOA Lincoln-Douglas round, uh, both stylistically and rules-based. Uh, and there's a host of other organizations and activities that run this and every state is different. In the state of Wisconsin, in Minnesota, in Illinois, the State Activities Board runs speech and debate. And that's the same activities board that runs their uh, high school football championship. And at the same time, they will have many different events that are not CFL-sanctioned events or not NSDA events. And so sometimes one of the best part of this community is talking to other coaches from around the country to hear about their impromptu acting events or their persuasive speaking events, which are different from uh, duo interpretation or original oratory. That is really interesting because it's I you know that helps make sense. I remember one of my my first year we were competing uh, I, I took kid, uh, our Thales kids to, uh, to the Inlow uh, Eagle Open tournament, and I discovered that uh, impromptu is done differently in uh, the South or whatever region uh, or the Mid-Atlantic, whatever region North Carolina fits in. It's done differently than it is in the Midwest because in the Midwest, and this may be a college versus high school thing as well, but I, I just assumed that impromptu would be the standard quotation method that you get in the Midwest college circuit. But that, of course, was just how impromptu is going to be done at high school in North Carolina. And I have my kids come back and they're like, whoa, Mr. Herring, you didn't prepare us for this at all. And instead, they, they got these keywords and, and they, they, were, they were ready to interpret the quotation and put a two-point, two-point framework on it. Because that's what, that's what I learned how, how to do impromptu in doing impromptu in Michigan during college. Uh, but the, those regional differences are, are really interesting because they're we're yeah, all trying to and, do the same they, thing. And they truly exist at every event. And, you know, something if you look at a Lincoln-Douglas round in California, it looks extremely different from a Lincoln-Douglas round that you may see in Florida or New York. Uh, and that's all going to look very different from what you see in Montana and Missouri. And some of that is all about judge adaptation, right? What mm, people sure. are seeing one weekend after another, they want to focus on, and that's what they vote for, which is why everyone moves that direction. But I think one of the really amazing parts about either the national circuit or expanded national travel really is this experience of showing students the different ways that everyone thinks about speech and debate and how it functions. And does the national circuit, because uh, you used that phrase in talking about TOC a few minutes ago, does the national circuit sort of sit on top of all of those regional differences? Because it seems that national circuit develops its own style that's that's unique. And it's not really based on those uh, individual regional differences. Yeah, I would just count it as its own region uh, in, a, in a strange way, even though everyone who participates in it comes from all over the country, they're all gearing up to one school of thought. Uh, there are still some variants within that, right? We would, uh, if you are debating someone on the national circuit from the state of uh, North Carolina, you can assume that it's probably going to look more like a policy round 
Uh, if you debate someone on the national circuit from the Northeast, the round may be more critically focused uh, there. But, you know, if you debate someone from the state of Florida, it may be more centered around a different format. But the idea is, is that even then, and there are people who break out of those regional differences uh, because they understand a different layer of argumentation a different way, or they find a strategic advantage. I don't think so much that it overarches all of the, the smaller state regions, but in fact just kind of adds on top of it as another region. And it sort of is where the Venn diagram touches the NSDA community the least in a way. Uh, you know, just because you are successful at the Tournament of Champions or at large invitationals doesn't always translate over to success at the NSDA National Tournament. Why is that? Why, why, why does it require a different skill set or a, a different attitude or different focus at the NSDA National Tournament? The way I like to explain it is it's the same way that if we're going to coach college football. Uh, you want to wait to see who you're playing, whether it's the spread offense or it's, you know, a Big Ten team or it's going to be some, uh, you know, specific offensive package. Coupled with this idea of who's officiating rounds, there is a, a you know, the same way that you would look at a game and you would say, oh, well, this referee crew calls this more times than not depends to be on what the focus is. So on the national circuit, uh through a number of different things, one being that the travel requires people who are truly committed to the activity. It's very hard to get a parent to go to a national circuit tournament for four or five days uh, and then go through the grueling tournament that can be three straight days of debate. Those tend to be former debaters who are college debaters or former debaters who are just in college now who are closer to the activity and understanding where it is from a stylistic perspective. That's very different from the NSDA tournament, which one pulls from a much broader base. Uh, even though there are less debaters at the NSDA tournament, when you think about uh, a district like North Carolina's Tar Heel East district would only send three debaters total. Now you are talking about three or two debaters from all the different districts around the nation means that you had this wide variety of styles and then the tournament format changes how to be successful. So there are, uh, there are six preliminary rounds. There are two judges in every round and it is just a battle to see who can get eight ballots. And so you can't go in there doing the thing that you always do there has to be much more of a focus on judge adaptation to tr try to get those ballots from the judges. Which I assume is where judge paradigms come into the story. Yeah, you know, the NSDA national tournament has offered paradigms for several years, um, and they are almost radically different from what you would see from a judge paradigm at a national circuit tournament. You know, a national circuit tournament would allow a judge paradigm to probably be posted on tabroom.com or prior to it being uh, off the Internet, the Judge Philosophies wiki page. And that really is an open page where uh, judges can write everything about how they see debate. And they can do that ad nauseum and go on for paragraphs and paragraphs. In fact, most of those paradigms are way too long. The NSDA <laughs> paradigm looks at like very specific things on a slider metric. So will you vote based off of speed? Will you, uh, will you vote for someone or against them because they go too fast? And, and, and I think that that changes the way in which we see students debate in front of those. And I think at the same time, the topics tend to be uh, a little bit different to allow for a different style of debate. If you go back and look at the last 10 years of NSDA national tournament topics, they tend to be broader, more philosophical concepted topics. 
than what the January, February topic may be, which tends to be uh, the longest circuit tournament topic, because not only does it do all of the January tournaments in the February tournaments, but it also carries to the Tournament of Champions, which is in April. That topic tends to much more be look like a policy topic than what an NSDA topic would look like. Well, that's really interesting. That, that, that fits with last year's LD resolution patterns, at least. Or, I'm sorry, this year's LD resolutions. And I'm thinking back to last summer because we had that whole the LD resolution for, for nationals last summer was – uh, it was something it, – it flipped the novice resolution. It was about um, – oh, goodness, I'm blanking out. We have two episodes on this one. But it was something about uh, when is it um, – when is it morally right to uh, engage in in uh, violent revolution, basically. When is, and, and look at that, which is a – which was a really broad topic. I was kind of glad we didn't have to figure out a specific case for it since we didn't have anybody going to nationals last summer. Uh that, that's right. Really that topic uh, was violent revolution is a just response to political oppression. That's the one. Yep. Yep. That's it. That's and, it. And, and part of that is through the LD topic uh, wording committee. So one of the functions that the National Speech and Debate Association does is word both Lincoln Douglas in public forum topics through a specific committee process. And I chair the Lincoln-Douglas side of that committee, along with Joe Vaughn from Scarsdale High School in New York. And so when we're trying to get to a list of 10 final topics, one of the things that we, we do is we try to say, is there, a broad vari- is there a broad variety of topics? Is there a nationals topic on this list? Uh, a very fun thing to think about is if you look at the list of topics that were eligible for this year from the LD wording committee, the thought process was, is that perhaps the current March, April topic, which is predictive policing is unjust would actually be the nationals topic. It is the largest philosophical topic. It is timely. It isn't so much of a plan and creating counter plans and disadvantages but instead talks about what is government's role mm-hmm. and where is government overstepping that role. That is now the March-April topic, which begs the question, what did the public vote on for the nationals topic? Ooh. Now that's – okay. So now I know that – I'm trying to remember. We haven't there, – there's not been an NSDA kind of vote through the website about which one for nationals or have I missed that, have I missed that already? Has that so one – That is uh, – and this process is actually changing uh, for next year. But that is uh, – in Lincoln-Douglas, all five topics are voted on at the same exact time. Uh, and that occurred in August of 2019. Okay. And it was for September, October, January, uh, sorry, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, and nationals. And we work backwards on those. So the top vote getter uh, in the nationals topic slot becomes the nationals topic. And then they move down the list, always removing the topics that have already been selected. So the highest vote receiver total is always going to be the nationals topic because in the eyes of the NSDA, it is the most important topic because it selects the national champion. Okay. That's, oh, that is really interesting. I didn't quite understand that was the way the topics ended up being chosen. Uh, And there'll probably be a little bit of a different scenario coming forward for the next school year. Uh, That's actually being discussed right now uh, by the wording committee and the national office. Uh, so stay tuned as we continue to try to create a easier to understand, fair, equitable process. Okay. 
Oh, Crawford, let's let's bring this down uh, down just a little bit back to the local level because it's one thing to be up there on kind of the national level, but your your day to day, as you told us at the beginning of this episode, is much more about the program at Durham Academy. Uh, I was looking, I was help, uh, you may have to help me with your official title in a moment because all I could find on the Durham website was uh, upper school debate, and that just didn't quite seem like it it fit. Uh, but my understanding is that you're the head of the program at Durham Academy. What all does what all do you do as the director of speech and debate on a on a day to day level for the students who are involved in the, this activity at Durham Academy? Yeah, so my title at Durham Academy uh, is actually threefold. The one that deals the most with uh, what I do with speech and debate is I am the director of speech and debate for Durham Academy. Uh, that means that I am a full-time employee that oversees a team of about 100 students in a 400-person upper school. Uh, I am lucky enough to have the school support and the benefit of working with some amazing assistant coaches. Uh, all of those assistant coaches uh, are actually off of our campus. They don't work for Durham Academy on the campus but they are Durham Academy employees and travel with us and come to practice when they can. And some of them work remotely. Uh, they actually are constantly on Zoom or Skype or Microsoft Teams working with our students uh, because they go to college uh, somewhere else in the country. Um, and we try to split those up so that everyone has a coach contact that they can go to uh irregardless of their event. And that's also because under my purview as the director is not just running practices and preparing for competition, but it is also the idea that all of the travel arrangements uh, move through me, uh, which is for Durham Academy out of a 52 weekend uh, year, we travel 31 weekends out of the year. Uh, the entire team does not travel, but we travel in different sizes of groups, anywhere from traveling 50 students to a local to traveling two students to a national circuit tournament, depending on where we are. Uh, so I handle that. I do a great deal of the travel with my students. And then at the same time, I am the host and tournament director for the Cavalier Invitational, which is Durham Academy's own National Circuit Tournament, which takes place on Martin Luther King weekend on our campus in Durham, North Carolina. Which so far has the coolest trophies for tournament champions that I've yet seen. I really want one of my guys to win a sword at the Cavalier Invitational one, one year. It, uh, someday, someday we're going to bring home one of those swords. We can definitely uh, thank uh, my predecessor, Robert Sheard, uh, for that idea when we initially went and concepted the creation of the Cavalier Invitational while he was still at Durham Academy. He definitely wanted to have these swords, and I could not understand for me the uh, why he wanted to do this. And uh, now when I go around and, and people ask, like, who are you? And I, you know, Crawford Lavoy, they say, uh, uh, Durham Academy, are y'all are the guys with the swords. <laughs> uh, so it it occurs to me that he, he was actually uh, fairly uh, thinking about the future. Uh, you know, at the same time, uh, we kind of have an internal joke at Durham Academy that we love when people come to the tournament and uh, we want every one of our friends from across the nation to come so that they can force us to mail them a sword back. <laughs> uh, since it's particularly hard to fly with a full size uh, replica saber. Was uh was was your predecessor from Virginia by any chance? Uh, he was not. Uh, Robert Sheard, who uh, was at Durham Academy, he actually coached at Pinecrest High School here in North Carolina, and also coached at the University School in uh, at Nova Southeastern in Davie, Florida. Is originally from Pennsylvania and oh. Texas, uh, but. As Durham Academy are the Cavaliers, sometimes we uh, politely uh, steal from our friends at the University of Virginia, whether it comes from logos or concepts about swords. 
Well, I, I grew up in uh, Chesapeake, Virginia, and uh, my high school, Stonebridge School, we were also the Cavaliers. And there's a long-standing Virginia tradition with Cavaliers and Cavalier swords, and uh, supporting the Cavalier side in the English Civil War, and all those things. So, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty fantastic. I do love the fact that you guys have those swords. Uh, hopefully there's also just some enjoyment of the fact that the swords are pretty awesome in there too, uh, along with all the other good publicity pieces of that. Um, now Crawford, you mentioned traveling 31 weekends per year. Uh, was that a difficult part to get used to in this job or is that something, are you excited by that much travel or that, that, that sounds like that is a lot of travel, uh, for, for anybody. Um there, there are definitely some long stretches there that, you know, where, where you, you want some time. Uh, but at the same time, I know what this activity did for me, and I know what it has done for hundreds of thousands of students across the country. I want that for my students. And if part of that is travel, then that's what it's going to take. Uh, and luckily, I, I'm... I'm lucky enough to work for an institution that sees that my job isn't the normal eight to three teacher job. Uh, first off, no teacher job is eight to three. <laughs> yeah, uh, you beat me and, to it. Yep. And, ev- and even more so, uh, you know, I understand that sometimes my work week involves all day Saturday, all day Sunday and flying around on a Thursday or a Monday. I enjoy the travel. I enjoy it because I have friends from across the nation and I get to see them and I get to catch up with them. At the same time, I get to celebrate their students. Uh, I think that being part of this community is not just about our own success, but the success of those around us and how to help them. And so it's a balancing act. And it's a, it truly is a yin and yang of at some times making sure that, you know, we may travel eight weeks in a row. And some of that is all across the nation. And some of that is traveling locally. And at the same time, I find myself in my home on weekends and I have no idea what to do with my time. Uh, (laughs) You know, in today's current environment, uh, I've had to become really okay uh, with, with, a world in which we don't have tournaments and we don't have travel. Uh, and that's been a very interesting personal journey. I, I'm, I'm sure. I know this was the first year that uh, I, I did. We've had a team that was able to compete this much. We had a uh, seven-week stretch across January and February where we had tournaments every uh, every weekend. That's the first time uh, – and I, I, I learned the wisdom of uh, needing to add more people to our uh, Dogwood uh, coaches list so that next year other people can take the two or three kids that need to go to that tournament. Someone else can take them and be the coach on campus with them. I don't want to be the only person who can be at all of these tournaments. But I got to the end of that stretch and realized that going through that had forced me to kind of up my game in terms of efficiency during the week. And it, it stretched me to maximize every moment of time. And suddenly it, it took me a couple weekends to get back to a normal rhythm. Like, Oh yeah, I do. I can plan on having Saturday. I'm not going to be at a tournament this Saturday. And I, I kind of miss it. I also kind of enjoyed uh, this past Saturday, being able to cut the yard, <laughs> do some, well, do some and other then, things. You know, there was, a four-year stretch in my time at Durham Academy where I was not on campus and I was working a full-time job elsewhere. And and I was juggling being there and at the same time being on campus and trying to travel with the team. And I think it has taught me to be more efficient. But at the same time, I recognize that right now I know how to fit it in and I just have to keep moving as effectively as I can, and hopefully it will all work out. <laughs> Some days it feels really dim. Some days it feels a lot better. Oh. Well, and I, I, I certainly, uh, I hopefully the uh, current coronavirus uh, will will simmer down uh, by certain, hopefully by this summer, and we'll be next season we'll be back to a, a normal uh, travel regimen. But we'll see. Um, now. 
Uh, Crawford, do, uh, do, do, do tell us a little about some of uh, your coaching stories. I, I'm, uh, I'd love to hear about uh, some competitive barriers you've seen students overcome over the years. You know, I think when we start talking about what are compare, competitive barriers that face students, I think one thing is, is all, all of this has all built into a world that sometimes relies way too much on what resources a school or a student ha- has in order to be competitive. Uh, and, you know, I think that's as simple as one getting there uh, because whether you're having to drive, whether you're having to fly, stay in a hotel, or even just drive down the street and have someone there to be a school representative, that takes a ton of resources. Uh, You mentioned kind of this uh, local uh, story about uh, schools that need certain coaches on file with the local organizations and able to be there with their students. Uh, And at the same time, we know that there are schools that they don't have on-person coaches or they're being coached by parents and that makes everything very difficult. Uh, and, and I work with a number of those students uh, from a summer camp perspective. I work with a number of those students as a district chair or as the tournament director of the Dogwood in order to try to help find them ways in which to be competitive. If speech and debate is truly a place where students are supposed to be able to share their voice, then we should be creating avenues for them to share their voice. At the same time, you know, I think there is always a competitive world in which it is about acquiring certain skill sets in order to be competitive. Um, I remember when I had really my first kind of head coach job, I took over a program that was uh, just ending its first year. It was lucky enough to have gone out and recruited a number of freshmen to be novices. So in their first year, they were sophomores, they were debating, uh, they were doing extremely well uh, locally, uh, probably because they they weren't freshmen. Uh, you know, mm, sure. freshman year is hard, but when you're a sophomore, you've learned a little bit about how to conduct yourself and how to talk in public. So you have a leg up on the freshmen who are just coming to an upper school environment and are trying to figure out, you know, where they are. And at the same time, it was so fascinating to watch for the first time in my career, the problem of getting administrative support Mm. to participate in this activity. Uh, And, and, and that's not just a money uh, issue. That is a time issue That is a risk management issue. And I think it is fundamentally one of the things that we uh, kind of don't really talk about as a community, that we're really lucky to enjoy this life-changing activity. But we only enjoy it because of a huge amount of trust that our institutions give us because we've earned it and we've proven that we're going to make responsible decisions. And I think so often uh, something that I have to think about at tournaments is how many administrators are kind of scared about traveling students around the country and funding it. And, you know, it's this it's a huge balance that makes it very difficult at times. There's a lot of truth to that. I remember a few years ago when Thales was starting up the uh, Coolidge Debate League, our first weekend uh, it was the uh, the Coolidge Debate League started for a variety of purposes, and there were a whole bunch of people who were instrumental to it getting rolling. But it primarily began with a think tank group who wanted a debate league and a founder who volunteered a school. And the person who was skipped in this conversation was the an actual administrator in on that campus. And so what ha- what ended up happening was that a group of th- a think tank group came in. 
and uh, a bunch of kids were at the school on a Saturday, and a tournament occurred, and then the Think Tank people flew back to their locations, and the kids all went home and said, hey, we like debate. The administrator arrived at the school on Saturday to a trashed building, or came to school on Monday morning to a trashed building. She was livid. Uh, and it, it became very clear that if this was going to go forward and be a positive thing, uh, it, it really had to have somebody who was a liaison between that school and the people who are running the tournament. Because unlike you and all the Dogwood League, um, pe- people on the Dogwood League's executive board, the folks running these tournaments were not people in a school. They didn't understand real children and know that if you don't follow behind them, real children will not put, pick up trash. They will not put rooms back together. They will leave places uh, as dumps. And But we needed somebody to just make sure that that would happen. Uh, and, and once we got that piece figured out, the, the rest of the tournaments really kind of fell into place. And we've had immense support, but I think that that kind of administrative support is key for, for this activity to happen. Uh, no, and I mean, I will, I will tell you for the first time this uh, for the first time ever, We've moved a portion of the Cavalier Invitational onto our middle school campus, which is actually a separate campus than we're used to using at Durham Academy. Uh, and we knew that it was going to be, uh, irregardless of how many off-campus groups they host a year, uh, the onus was on us to take care of their spaces and to put their spaces back and to gain that trust. Uh, What was very interesting is in meetings that I had uh, several weeks ago, far after the Cavalier invitation was done, uh, it was brought up to me by the middle school director. He was like, well, you know, if you want to see what a trash building looks like. And I turned and I went, oh, my goodness, you never told me we didn't treat your space with respect. And he said, oh, no, y'all were great. It was this other group that we just used the building. It was awful. And I think that, you know, it's so easy for people to just forget what are the bigger things at play other than just the debate round. Uh, It's so so interesting because if you think about it from a, what are the benefits of national travel, right? It's not just, well, I traveled nationally and I got to debate in a different state. There are real world education goals that we have that are life skills that students have to, practice uh one how to move through an airport uh how to be responsible for yourself when a parent who's possibly going to do each and everything for you isn't there how to pack a bag how to manage a campus map on a college campus to be able to get around and when you're hungry and how to feed yourself how to budget money responsibly and these very like not these very tertiary goals are truly things that speech and debate coaches become life coaches at. The relationship I've had with my students has always been more than a a coach and a debater because I tend to be, in some way, living with them on the weekends. And so it becomes of how do I educate them how to be better citizens in the world just beyond what happens for 45 minutes in a room. I think the one of the favorite things I love about uh, debate and speech. I, I we only we have a very small we have very small participation in speech, so I tend to not focus on them as much, which is unfortunate. But I one of the things I love about this activity is that it does create those kind of moments where you can have very real conversations with students, and it it allows the development of relationships beyond the semi-professional uh, teacher-student connection and actually get to the point of like where you can really, in a very real way, it becomes a life-on-life kind of mentorship as you're kind of going about these experiences, all within the bounds of appropriateness and a professional demeanor from the adult, but in a way that we actually get to know the kids <coughs> in a totally different way than, their, than uh, I, I think just the classroom permits. Yeah, no, it's, you know, I think about it from a, uh, if you think about it from a college higher ed position, debate is one of the student life functions, right? It is the other classroom. You may not get a grade for it. It may not be uh, in a classroom setting all the time, but it truly is something that shapes the lives of students for the rest of their lives. 
And that becomes truly important about how we mentor those students. Oh, uh, Crawford, as we kind of, at least, uh, I, I have a few more questions on my list, but as we kind of bend this towards a conclusion, um, I, I, I don't know a ton about the audience for this show. We've had uh, amazing success, uh, at least in terms of like we've had lots of people listen to our episodes. Um, but the few people who've spoken out or have sent, spoken up or sent in feedback are the ones that I know have listened to our show. And among those people are we've got some parents who are coaching their children. And we've also got some coaches of new small school programs. Uh, do you have any thoughts about along the lines of advice that you'd offer coaches, either professional coaches or parent coaches, who are trying to get deeper into the world of high school speech and debate? Uh, yeah, no, I, I look, step one, uh, get a mentor. Uh, and, and I know that that sounds really odd, right? Like you can't just like go to a local tournament and be like, will you be my mentor? Uh, it's part of my life story that I'm part of organizations that believe in mentorship and sponsorship. And, and I think it's really important that, uh, one, I have a mentor who is someone I can pick up the phone with every day if I need to and scream to the top of my lungs about something a student has done or that I don't like from an administrative decision or that I don't know how to fix on tab room or I'm at a tournament and I just need I need someone to give me advice that isn't politicized. Uh, and, and that person is, is that person. Uh, and, and they have, uh, you know, particularly for me, it's a guy whose name is Greg Malice, who's the uh, former director of speech and debate at Isidore Newman, or excuse me, the former co-director. Uh, his wife would be very upset if I didn't acknowledge her. <laughs> uh, she's one of my best friends, too. But, you know, Greg and Alma serve as two people that at every moment since I got involved in this activity, they have been there for me. And they have been the people who shook my hands when my students won. And when everyone was happy about what a student did, they turned to me and said, congrats, coach. They have looked at me when I have lost rounds or lost protest or lost jobs even. And they have said, what's the teachable moment and how do you move forward? I think sometimes if you look at the beginning, listen to the beginning of this podcast and you're like, okay, well, I want to understand speech and debate. Let me get my pen and paper out. I'm going to write down all the national organizations. It becomes overwhelming. It's a list of jargon and acronyms. And really all this is is about finding another human being who's willing to take 15, 10 minutes between here and there and tell you, this is what you need to hear. Uh, and sometimes it's not enough, and sometimes it's stop whining and get back in there. Uh, this is a really wonderful community, and it's a difficult community. Uh, one, there are crazy people all around it, including me. But at the same time, I don't know another community that has the ability to be as life-changing as this one is. It's about finding the right people who really teach you the lesson every day on what is the point of what we are doing. Uh, and I'm lucky to have mentors locally uh, that are part of organizational boards that I'm on now. And they call me for advice. And what's very weird is they say I'm the boss and they're actually the boss. And I think that it's that community of care and support and concern together that really can help uh, an aspiring coach, whether they are on day one, whether they are on day 100, uh, whether they're just doing this for the next year because their student cares. There's a ton of questions to ask, and it's about knowing who's willing to answer them for you in the best way possible that really will help people. That's a, that's a great bit of advice. I think that's been, I know that's been key to uh, really, I think I, I found a great, bit, a great bit of value this year in particular in getting to know more coaches as I've gone to tournaments and, and judged. Uh, I'm, I'm not just hanging around with my students or just hanging around with the parents, but I found a lot of value in talking to other parents or coaches and learning about kind of what they do. Uh, and a different variety of activities and programs that exist in our area. Um, 
Now, Crawford, would you uh, offer any advice to students? Because we do, of course, have lots of students that listen to this show. Some who are middle schoolers who are super envious of anything high schoolers are doing. We've got lots of high schoolers who are done now with uh, their novice year and others who are looking at a looming senior year coming. Uh, Any advice for high school students who are moving forward in this activity? The piece of advice I give every one of my students every year is uh, you need to have a Word document on your desktop. And it needs to have what your goals are. And those should be what are your goals for this month or this topic for the semester, for the year, for your entire career. And I know that sounds like really old, fogey, like you have to have goals. Success is fleeting and it comes in different ways. And the only way you will know what you truly get out of not only this activity, but every activity you do in life is to map out what you want from it. And look, those are going to change. There are going to be times where you go back and you open that saved document and you're like, what were my goals for the next six months? And you're like, those are awful goals. (laughs) I don't like that anymore. I like this now. Great. Change the goal. Because it should be the driving force in every decision you make. We sit down at the beginning of every year with every student individually and talk about What is the long-term goal? What is the short-term goal? And I try to keep those so that I can come back. And when a student says, I really want to do this, I can say, great. What of these goals is that helping to achieve? And if the answer is none of them, and there is no, so we need to have a new goal, then we shouldn't be doing it. Because If we're really here to just do the next right thing, that can be the only thing truly guiding us. And I think that when students start to learn that they should put those down on paper, they become oriented to them, they become accountable to them, and then it truly does help give the sense of accomplishment that it's not a trophy, it's not a placement, it is this overall idea that you've reached a higher level because you have been able to claim something is what you want to have done, and then you've gone out and gotten it. You know, I think there's a lot of seniors this year who had really big goals, whether it started at the district level, whether it was a state level, whether it was a national level, and suddenly that's been taken from them. There's no amount of coaching that can make someone okay with that. And uh, it takes a while to get to the point where you recognize that looking back on this, some of these things are just really small bumps that aren't going to mean a lot. How I placed at Nationals my senior year has not made me a better debate coach or a worse debate coach. It's a part of my story. And I think that right now, any what every student needs to hear is, we take this one day at a time, doing the next right thing, focused around goals. My team met today, and we were like, do we want to be done? And I was inspired to hear no. And it immediately became a, so what are we going to do? Well, let's reestablish virtual practices. Let's create a list of questions we have about things we want to learn. Let's start setting up drills online. Let's focus on a topic we all know and understand so we can just get better at the skills instead of the content. And I think that that's really how we're going to have to get through all of this together is slowly, bit by bit, working together on our goals. I love that that focus on goals. Um, I, I found uh, Aristotle to be one of the most helpful philosophers in terms of practical living. 
in large part because his focus on telos or purpose and how his argument that everything has a purpose and we can measure something's goodness or the, the effectiveness of something based on whether it achieves that purpose. I love that picture, that vision you just cast of really an effective, purpose-driven, a goal-driven coaching, I think, or, and, and really that, that gives a great concrete way for students to really lay out where they want to go and be able to see uh, really if they're moving in that direction. Um, well, Crawford, let, let's do, uh, let, let's take this, uh, we, we focused on past and present. Uh, let, let's take this a bit towards your thoughts on the future. Uh, I've been looking uh, mostly curiously cause, uh, and, and a little anxiously, but I've been quite curious about the developments of an electronic version of the TOC. And then I've, I saw the email about uh, the, the NSDA is holding off on whether or not there will be an in-person nationals or whether it will be electronic based on how well the ETOC goes. What are your thoughts on the development of this electronic platform for large national scale debating? Is this the wave of the future? Is this a, uh, is this a, a, a workable solution for a crisis time? Or is this kind of where things are going from here on out? What are your thoughts? Um, I had an opportunity to sit in the webinar with uh, the University of Kentucky staff who's in charge of the Tournament of Champions. And that's you know Lincoln Garrett, who's their director of debate and uh, their IT specialist. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people were skeptical about whether or not online debate can work. I think that uh, that's really funny to me uh, because online debate does work. Uh, it doesn't happen a lot formally, but certainly uh, the NSDA has had online uh, coaching clinics. Uh, we have had online debates through Discord. Uh, and I know people debate with their friends via FaceTime or Zoom. Uh, these are the things we're doing in an effort to get better already. I think that, you know, the glory and honor of being on the Kentucky campus has been more uh, or not being there has been more of a shock to everyone. Uh, is this the wave of the future? You know, I, I don't really know. I, since I, I've been working on uh, pandemic related uh, issues at school for about the past four weeks. And I, I've gotten to that point where I can only really see about the next 72 hours in my life. Uh, everything past 72 hours seems to be a, like, who knows what's going to happen uh, because the world is changing so rapidly in a time of uncertainty. Uh, but is, you know, we're going to get back to normal. There's no doubt in my mind. Does that mean that online debate has a larger focus in it? I, I don't think you're going to start seeing uh, large tournaments move online or district tournaments move online next year. I think that this is truly a world in which right now this is a great substitute in a time of crisis. Uh, and I think this is the community having to grieve at the loss of its ability to be an active community. Uh, we are a community that travels and interacts with people and, you know, puts 500 people to 5,000 people at a debate tournament. And to all be stuck in our homes is really different. Uh, and we're having to learn how to cope with that too. I will say what I hope for online debate. In this activity, we talk so much about a lack of access uh, through resources. And I think that online debate potentially opens the door to solving a portion of the resource problem. You know, whether it's the national circuit or just the larger traveling community, I hope that people are able to start recognizing that good cross-country debate can occur through online avenues uh, in these forums because that is a place where we could grow as a community and we can solve things that we say are community-based problems. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort. There are going to be bumps and bruises and internet lags along the way. That's okay. It's the same thing as talking about a student who doesn't meet their goals or a coach who gives the wrong piece of advice. We're going to learn from each one of them. And I, and I think that, you know, we'll learn a lot more after... Uh, April 20th when the TOC is done and 
then we'll start to see what the what the terminology and viewpoint of the future truly is. That's a that's a helpfully optimistic perspective. I, I appreciate that. I know there's tons of organizations. Um, our, our church has been navigating uh, how to still somehow meet while fitting under the, the governor's request to be at fewer than 10 people. Uh, our schools are all figuring out how to do online education. Uh, higher ed is has dumped a whole bunch of tenure track professors into the world of frontline technology challenges. And it seems to me that the speech and debate community is hopefully well poised to be able to take advantage of some of the opportunities that technology provides, uh, while hopefully also recognizing that uh, even if we were able to <coughs> solve a whole bunch of access issues, there's still something about everybody actually getting together that we could never really duplicate through an online tournament. But I do think it's a helpful, it's, it's a potentially helpful solution uh, now. It'll be really interesting to see where that goes in the coming days. Well, Crawford, before we draw this to a, a real close, um, I, I know you do a lot with the Institute for Speech and Debate. Uh, could, could you tell us, tell our audience about the ISD? And uh, feel free to treat this as a commercial if you'd like and try to recruit people to the ISD. But, but help us know what the ISD is and where it fits in the world of speech and debate. Yeah, so there's a number of uh, institutes and camps that operate in the summer in an effort to give not only an introduction to speech and debate to students, but also an opportunity for them to craft their skills uh, in the offseason, the same way that college baseball players go and play baseball in the Northeast, uh, and the same way that Olympians are constantly training. Uh, the Institute for Speech and Debate uh, was founded by a group of friends of mine who really wanted to approach this camp and institute structure differently. Uh, no one is out there thinking that every institute or camp is perfect, but as educators, uh, they saw, and I agree with them, that sometimes our focus in these institutes and these camps isn't centered around the education goal, but more... Uh, what former competitors could push as far as an agenda, uh, cheap tricks to win around, and they wanted to approach this differently. And so they founded the Institute for Speech and Debate, which now has three in-person sessions in Colorado, Carolina, and Florida, and focuses on every event. Public Forum, Lincoln Douglas, Oratory, Info, Interp, and Congress, and Extemp. Uh, I served on the public forum staff for uh, two years, and while sitting at dinner one night said, isn't it silly that we don't have a Lincoln-Douglas program because I think we could do really well with it given our viewpoints on the activity and the fact that I think it is a community that has a number of different camps, but none that really serve an audience that looks like us. Uh, and we agreed, so for the past... Uh, two years, I have been the curriculum director for Lincoln Douglas Debate, uh, and I love what I do there. Uh, it is an opportunity to work with students from all over the country. Uh, last year, I worked with students from uh, Florida and New York and North Carolina and a number of different other uh, places in order to learn from them, but also teach them uh, different uh, styles and viewpoints and help educate them on ways that debate was seen around the country. And at the same time, we have a great faculty from across the country uh, and a great junior faculty that has a lot of experience. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with two of the most talented debaters uh, I've ever known from the state of California over the past several years. Uh, we have some junior staff that are coming back that I think are going to be really exciting to help teach students. Uh, and so if you are considering that summer camp or summer institute is something you may want out of your speech and debate career, I would certainly encourage you to look at the Institute for Speech and Debate. Uh, they are reasonably priced. Uh, they focus on anything a classroom teacher would truly want to focus on from not only the curriculum, uh, but safety uh, and proper instruction, and I think that uh, you'll be hard-pressed to find a better place 
uh, during the summer months. Well, Crawford, thank you so much for uh, for that closing note. Uh, and I appreciate you coming on the show today uh, to really help us have a better understanding of how speech and debate operates really around the world. Uh, now, where can folks find or follow you and your work online? Do you have a, any uh, Twitter handle or a website you'd point people towards? I am not so much of a Twitter person. Uh, certainly, uh, our team does have an Instagram at DA Debate. Uh, you are welcome to follow my own personal journey, uh, which is embarrassing because I don't even think I know my own username. Uh, actually, my own username on Instagram is C-L-E-A-V-O-Y. Uh, and then you'll kind of always see a, a list of what we're doing uh, and Durham Academy Debate uh, does keep a website uh, that talks about not only what we're doing, but what we've accomplished in our 15-year history. And you can always find that at www.dadebate.com. Fantastic. I, 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 I'm not so much of an Instagram guy. I think Ethan runs most of our uh, podcast page. And I, what little bit I know about Instagram, I've had to learn from him. So uh, I, I feel your pain on the, uh, the not knowing uh, the, the screen name there. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of What's the Res? We hope this episode has been helpful to you in your debate journey. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that in a variety of ways. You can reach us via email at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit with the handle at whatstheres underscore or on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. My guest this episode has been Crawford Lavoie. Until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. Oh,